All right, Alexander, let's do a Ukraine update. And let's start with what is going on on the ground in Ukraine. To be quite honest, it's it's been a bit quiet uh, today with uh, with a lot of the fighting in Ukraine. I'm not sure if that means anything or if this is just kind of a, a lull before we get to, to something very, very big. Um, what is, what is your take? I mean, well, Kremenaya, the, there was there was fighting in the Kremenaya direction. Yeah, yeah. To be quite the, honest, but what's what's your take on things? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there is a period of quiet because I think both sides are now waiting for the Ukrainian offensive when it eventually appears. A a uh, Russian official, or rather, I should say, a retired Russian official, a man called Marochko, who gives a lot of interviews, uh, um, but who is quite well informed, and he, this is an interview he gave to TASS. He said that it would not be possible for Ukraine to conduct an offensive over the next two weeks because the ground is too soft. He's just been to the Donbass. He's visited all the particular areas. He says it's, there's been too much rain, too much mud. It's simply not possible to conduct the kind of armoured offensive that uh, Ukraine is talking about. So I suspect what's happening is that everybody can see that this offensive is coming. And for that reason... Neither side wants to commit too much of its force before that offensive starts. Ukraine doesn't want to dissipate. This force is putting, trying to cobble together. And um, Russia doesn't want to dissipate its forces in advance, both of the counteroffensive. Firstly, because it wants to repel the counteroffensive. And then, after the counteroffensive has been repelled, we are told by the Russian ambassador to London that Russia wants to go on the offensive itself. So they've got each got reasons for not doing too much at the moment. But that doesn't mean that nothing is going on. And there were a lot of reports last night and they're still out there this morning and they've been sort of confirmed. We must take this very carefully because he's not always been right. Well, they've been sort of confirmed by a man called Gagin who is the advisor of Denis Pushilin, who is the head of the Donetsk government. Anyway, there's reports that in Bakhmut, which remains the big battle at the moment, still the ongoing big battle, the Wagner forces have now actually cut, they've occupied the last remaining road into Bakhmut, and that the Ukrainian forces in Bakhmut are therefore technically now uh, properly speaking now in a cauldron, they're in a trap, that they are in fact um, encircled and unable to get supplies. Now, there were also reports that the Ukrainians, after that happened... Can I just clarify you? Does, does that mean that it means the lid has been closed? Like yes, it's the lid has completely, been closed. Is that what he said? Yeah, that's okay. exactly said, that the lid has been closed. Actually, I think he almost used that expression, in fact. Now, there were also reports... Um, after he made that statement, that the Ukrainians are counterattacking and are trying to push the Russians off this road. But, you know, there's, so clearly there's a lot going on backwards and forwards. But that was the information that Gagin has given. And it would be consistent with some reports I was seeing previous to these comments that he made today, which were coming out yesterday. But there is radio silence about it from both sides. The Russians are not saying anything officially. Prigozhin has not said anything. The Russian defense ministry has not said anything. 
and the Ukrainians obviously aren't saying anything either. So we'll just have to see, wait and see what's happening there. What is indisputable is that Ukraine now controls roughly 10% of Bakhmut, or at least it did up to yesterday. And with every day, that area that it controls is shrinking. Now, what that means, how many Ukrainian troops are in this area of Bakhmut that they still control, whether they really are cut off, whether there is a cauldron with a lid put on, I don't know. I mean, but those are the reports that we're getting at the moment. This bit of silence for a couple of days, and then you get like a flurry of news. And yes, yes, and yes. I think you you, you said Ukraine you said disputes it. Yes, exactly. That is exactly correct. I mean, that is exactly the pattern. There's usually a period of silence after a city is captured, or or something big happens. And then we get the announcements from the Russians. Um, in Solidar, it was exactly like that. It's been like that in many other places as well. Usually, in the case of the Russian Ministry of Defense, they wait several days, actually, after a place has been captured before they formally announce it. Of course, if you're talking about Ukraine, well, um, I think it took them something like two months to finally admit that Solidar had fallen and that the Russians had captured it. So, you know, the Ukrainians are much slower. Yeah, and Mariupol, the Azov style, it was a strategic, a strategic retreat withdrawal. or something like that. <laughs> That's what they, a strategic withdrawal, yeah. So, I mean, okay, uh, let, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, Stoltenberg's trip to Kiev. Let's uh, discuss the... The commanders, the the defense ministers uh, of the collective West meeting in Germany in the Ramstein Air Base, um, they're they're planning, they're plotting. I guess the the offensive. They're talking about weapons to Ukraine. There's uh, the U.S. Uh, they gave another three hundred and like twenty thirty million in weapons to Ukraine. It seems like very little, to be quite honest. Um, and uh, we've even got some rumors that Lloyd Austin is going to be training Ukraine soldiers on Abrams tanks. Anyway, uh, we have Stoltenberg in Kiev. We have this contact group meeting in, in Germany to plan the next steps. What's what's going on? Well, I think the reason that Stoltenberg was sent to Kiev and the reason that Stoltenberg made all these big announcements when he got back and whilst he was in Kiev as well, that you know, everybody in NATO agrees that Ukraine is going to become part of NATO and belongs to NATO and all of that, is to conceal the fact that this meeting in Einstein is coming up with nothing. As you rightly said, $320 million of additional military help is insignificant relative to Ukraine's needs. In fact, with every single military package, you would get the occasional uptick, but overall, the actual supply of weapons that Ukraine's been getting has been falling since I would estimate, personally, the late summer of, um, tw of last year. It was about the summer of last year that it all peaked, and then we saw a reduction, and then there was an uptick again in, the, uh, in January with the decision to supply the tanks, and then it's been trending downwards again, trending down to very low levels now. And so Ukrainians are obviously, the Ukrainians are very upset about this. So we get these uh, 
count uh, uh, you know, statements that don't really mean very much. So Lloyd Austin comes along, says we're going to train the Ukrainians on M1 Abrams tanks, but these aren't going to be the tanks they're actually going to use. The tanks they're going to use, they're not going to get until next year. So the, in the meantime, they're going to be trained on different Abrams tanks. And, you know, this, this story of the Abrams tanks has been a, a, a farce, actually, because originally they weren't going to supply any tanks like that. Then they said that they would do. Then they were going to be newly manufactured tanks. Then it turned out that the Lima factory is absolutely overwhelmed with orders and it's only got a production rate of something like 25 a month or something like that, a very low production rate, so it can't, it can't actually keep, it can't actually produce these tanks in time. I think it was, I think it was a month, it might have been a year, but anyway, very low production rate. So then they were going to take old Abraham's tanks out of store, but then they have to refurbish these, which is also going to take months. And so, again, in order to appease the Ukrainians, we say, well, we're going to train you on different Abrams tanks, our own Abrams tanks, in the meantime. So when you get these tanks in next year, well, you'll be ready to use them right away. So this is, this is the sort of game that we hear being played. And at the same time, we get Stoltenberg. He goes off to Kiev. He says, no, well, look. You know, we're not able to supply you with very much, but yes, we do all support your plan to enter NATO one day. You do belong in NATO, which uh, at the same time, he takes that back because he says you can only join NATO after victory. And of course, if you lose, well, obviously, if you lose, <laughs> then the question doesn't even exist. So um, it's 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 basically comments and statements and things which are intended to, I think to keep Ukrainian hopes alive because um, realistically after this offensive I don't think there's very much left I don't think they have very much more that they can realistically do um, in terms of arms supplies that is I mean they can do bigger things they could try and impose no-fly zones or send the Polish army into Ukraine and do all those crazy reckless incredibly dangerous things but in terms of supplies, immediate supplies and support, they don't have anything. They can only keep their fingers crossed and hope this offensive succeeds. Yeah, sometimes I wonder whose hopes they're trying to, to keep up, uh, Ukraine or, or their own. But um, stay with that thought on Poland for a bit. Because Dmitry Medvedev, when he heard Stoltenberg's statement with Ukraine and NATO, he put out this tweet. This post on Telegram as well. He said, in Kiev, Stoltenberg said, Ukraine's rightful place is in NATO, and over time, our support will help you to make this possible. Translating NATO Secretary General's utterance from Ukro English into plain English, quote, over time means we'll join the alliance with the parts by then belonging to Poland, Hungary, and Romania, and... Our support will help you stands for it's so good that soon I won't be there. The reason I bring up this tweet from Medvedev is because this is not the first time he's referenced this Poland, Hungary, Romania um, bit. He's even put a map out there as to 
what he believes, I guess, Ukraine is going to look like when the conflict is all said and done. What, what do you think uh, Medvedev knows? What do you think he's, he's trying to do here? Does he know anything or is he just trying to agitate? Is he trying to signal something? What, what do you make of his response to Stoltenberg's statement? Well, the first thing to say is I think he knows an awful lot because he's, after all, the deputy chair of Russia's Security Council. He gets all the intelligence, the same intelligence that Putin is getting. So he is very well informed, indeed, as well informed as anybody in Russia is about what is happening. Of course, we don't know how good Russia's intelligence is and how um, you know, good their sources in Poland and uh, elsewhere are. I suspect they've got pretty good sources in Ukraine. But, you know, I, you know, I think he is very well informed and he is probably highlighting what is an actual current ongoing debate among some people in the West, that this offensive um, is very much the last throw of the old war. The old war was all about, you know, smashing Russia with sanctions, breaking the Russian army on the defences of the Donbass, hoping, you know, hoping that that's going to uh, be enough to precipitate regime change in Russia. And by the way, before we carry on with that, I just wanted to remind you that if, in our previous video, when we discussed the war, and I think in other videos too, in other programs, you have repeatedly said that the tactic, the policy that the West has, that Ukraine has, is not to win a military victory, but to panic the Russians into triggering a regime change crisis in Moscow. And now we've had an enormous article in Foreign Policy written by one of the people, I believe, on the International Institute of Strategic Studies, who essentially says that, that very thing. He says that the only way this offensive can succeed and its purpose, its effective purpose, is to paralyse the Russian military and political leadership and panic the Russian army, the Russian soldiers. So it's more than anything else, it, it's confirmed now that this is a psychological warfare operation. I mean, they're coming out now and practically saying that. So the offensive is the last throw at achieving this. If that doesn't work, what else can they do? Well, they can either pull back and one senses that perhaps people like Scholz and Macron might be open to that in some respects. Certainly Macron probably would be. I mean, he changes his position literally by the day, but he seems to have been, he's a bit more, shall we say, reflective sometimes than others are. But the hardliners in Washington and in London and in Brussels, people like Stoltenberg, I mean, they're not going to be satisfied with the debacle they're going to want some kind of prolongation of the war. And if the offensive fails, it's difficult to see how that can be achieved without involving countries like Poland, for instance. Okay, before we get, uh, get on to say the, the, the economics of this, of this conflict, uh, the grain deal and, and some other stuff, I want to ask you about about this uh, 
this plan to create panic in, uh, in the Kremlin, in the Russian military. We had the German defense minister come out the other day and say essentially that if we stop funding and arming the Oletsky regime, the war is over. And we can't have that. It's impossible to accept that. The day after he made that statement, I believe we had the German, I want to say the finance minister, but I could be wrong, but a very high level German official say that there is no way impossible that the European Union and Germany would have any, any involvement in this conflict whatsoever. I mean, zero involvement. That, that, was, that was her statement. And, and then we get this foreign policy um, article talking about the real goal of, of the offensive is, is to create panic. What, what kind of panic do you think they're going to be able to create? And, and do you think these statements, a lot of conflicting statements that are coming out now, do you think this is part of creating this type of panic or misdirection or throwing the Russians off course? I mean, what's... Yes. What do you think, or, or is this just is or is this just general chaos in the collective West, and they really don't have a plan? Well, and I they're think just hoping for some sort of general panic to come up. I, I don't think they have a single plan, and I don't think any of the plans that they have, if one took them apart and examined them properly, as one should do, would make any great sense. But what I suspect is happening is that there's a multiplicity of different plans. There's lots of people coming forward, each with their own ideas. So some people are saying, well, let's provide Ukraine with fighter jets and um, long range missiles. And others are saying, no, we can't do that. We don't have enough of those. And besides, the training, the training schedules are too, sh are too short to use these things effectively. So others are saying, well, let's, in that case, declare a no-fly zone. You know, in ourselves go in and uh, declare a no-fly zone. And others are saying, no, that really doesn't work. We can't. There's no way German or French or indeed British pilots could participate in an operation like that. So others are saying, well, let's get the Poles to go in and do it all for us instead. And let's get the Balts involved. So I think there's lots of different plans and probably lots of different arguments all going on behind the scenes. I mean, bear in mind, I strongly suspect that some countries in NATO don't want to see Ukraine in NATO. Why would they? Um, so, I mean, you know, there's lots of disagreements, lots of arguments, lots of things going on under the surface. Uh, people in Washington as well. There's probably arguments going on in Washington. There's some people who are saying, look, this has gone too far. We're overcommitted. We've got to find some kind of a way out. Let's see whether we can talk to the Russians and come to some kind of um, settlement, some kind, you know, talk reason with them, see whether we can moderate their demands and find a way out of this. And um, others are saying in Washington, no, we must hang on because we're going to achieve victory. Russia will break any moment. So you have all of these different people probably all saying different things and none of them fully agree. And um, I don't get the sense that there is any single plan because they were all agreed right at the start on one plan, which was the sanctions, which were going to kill Russia once and for all, end Putin, create the crisis in Russia, and the West would be able to move in and pick up the pieces. And that hasn't happened. And they haven't really been able to come up with a constructive plan since then. All they can do is 
try to hold the line in Ukraine by sending in bits and bobs of weapons that they can find or dredge up from somewhere and hope up to this point that something will turn up. And that's been, if you like, the default position in the absence of them being able to agree with each other a plan. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? Because they can't agree on a plan. They are, they've been sort of kick, do, doing what they always do anyway, kicking the can down the road by giving, you know, Ukraine a few tanks here, a few uh, infantry fighting vehicles there, uh, a few shells, because that's all they've got, and hoping, keeping their fingers crossed, that that will cause panic in the Kremlin, that will cause General Gerasimov, the chief of the general staff, to launch a coup. I mean, this is a crazy idea, but it's been widely canvas, believe it or not, in the British media. British media is full of this story. The General Gerasimov is about to launch a coup, the man that Putin was supposed to sacked at one point, as I sort of remember. Anyway, that all of this is going to happen, and, you know, we're going to be spared the difficulty of making these very difficult positions and agreeing with each other what the next plan should be. Yeah, they are children. By the way, uh, I stand corrected. It was... The head of the Bundestag Defense Committee, Marie Agnes Strach Zimmermann, who said there will be no ground forces in Ukraine, not a single German soldier or European soldier will set foot on Ukrainian soil, period. Yes, I know. But of course, do the Poles agree? Now, in a way, when she talks about European soldiers, I mean, she that extends, if you like, to Polish soldiers. So, in a, I, I've said this repeatedly, that opinion in Germany will not support a Polish intervention in Ukraine. So what she's in effect saying is, if Poland goes into Ukraine, Germany won't support it. Yeah, very true. Okay, so let's uh, talk about uh, sanctions and grain. This is kind of going to be maybe a second part to, to this video. And uh, the first question I have for you is on sanctions, because we also have a little bit of confusion there as well. There are sources that are saying the EU is not going to impose any more sanctions, new sanctions. It's run out of road for sanctions. And whatever it can sanction, it's useless to sanction, according to these sources, because all that's going to happen is they're just going to create more exceptions to whatever is left to sanction. So basically, they've sanctioned Russia to, to the max and anything else would just mean that they have to create more exceptions where they'll get more loopholes and more member states bypassing these sanctions and it's, it's over. Meanwhile, you got a report saying that the G7 nations would like to embargo, put a trade embargo on Russia with the exception of food and, and medicines. They want to just create a full embargo on Russia. Which one is it? What's, what is going on? I mean, well, once again, these are officials, anonymous officials, and okay, they, these are their statements. We're not, we're not really sure who's saying this, but you have two right. different right. The, the, the short answer is that there are people within the West, the collective West, who are lobbying for both, and you can see how this is starting to shape out. So, um, I suspect within Europe now, um, European countries countries, Germany, France, they're saying, look, this has gone as far as it can. We can't 
realistically do more. Our economies are already suffering. We're losing our comp competitive edge. We may be facing a difficult winter again. Um, we're going to be living hand to mouth in terms of energy for the foreseeable future. Uh, this has gone as far as it possibly can. The sanctions didn't work and there's no point in pursuing them even further. But the other side, which is the hardliners, and they're principally to be found in Washington and London, and to some extent, to a great extent in Brussels as well, but especially, I think, here in Washington. They're saying, no, we can't back off. What we've got to do, if the original sanctions didn't work, we've got to double and triple and quadruple down, because we're so far in now that we can't possibly pull back. So, sanctions didn't work because they haven't. And uh, I've just done a program in which I've been looking at the latest Russian economic figures. And we've been getting a host, host of them now. Inflation in Russia. Remember, it was going to tip into hyperinflation. It's now at around, uh, it's now 2.8% at an annualised level. That's much lower than in Europe. In Britain, it's still in double figures. In the United States, it's around 6-7%. So inflation in Russia is lower than in the West. Production and output are rising fast. The economy is evolving and growing in Russia. So the sanctions have failed. So what we've got to do, we can't give up now. We've got to press on. So let's go all out. Let's do to Russia what we did to Iraq and what we're still doing to Cuba, except, of course, in Cuba, it was only the US. Let's get everybody this time to agree. We are going to impose an outright embargo on the Russians. We are not going to export any goods at all to Russia. So all goods, except for a few, you know, minor things like um, some medicines and things of that kind, probably not even that actually, will be, won't be supplied to Russia. And that will finally achieve this goal that we set ourselves with all along. It will call, cause an economic crisis. It will cause Russia finally to implode. It will cause Putin's fall. And hopefully, because this is what we really want, to see the breakup of Russia as well. So you've got these two, two, two sides that are dueling with each other. Now, up to this point, on every single occasion, it's the hardliners who've won. I do get the sense that finally the European worm is starting to turn and that opposition is now getting stronger. And it may be more difficult on this occasion to get the G7 to agree to something like this. I would have thought that Germany, even even this very divided government in Germany now, which is becoming more precarious by the day, by the way, by the way uh, a, a, a matter to discuss on another day. But even this very divided government in Germany, even the French government, are probably going to hold back and say, look, this isn't really practical. Let's not go there. Um, what what is being proposed, it, all it's going to do is going to make the Russians integrate their economies even more deeply with China's and perhaps India's as well. And all the important goods have already been sanctioned 
and are not being exported. So if you impose a full embargo, it's not actually going to make that much fundamental difference to the Russian economy in the short term or even perhaps the long term. But it will mean that we will have lost Russia once and for all. So I, I, I think that you're going to get pushback, more pushback against that idea this time. And I think that this embargo plan, which to be clear is, is crazy. I mean, it, it's a lunatic plan. And can I just add the greatest possible confession of failure? I mean, it proves the shock and nor sanctions failed. The uh, decision to uh, stop importing Russian oil failed, that the oil price cap idea failed. So, you know, you go for this embargo instead. But I think this time, this is just too crazy. It's just too ludicrous, even for, uh, you know, the EU states to meekly go along with. Yeah, before we get on the subject of grain, uh, where is Olaf? I was thinking about that this morning. Olive Schultz has kind of disappeared, hasn't he? Yeah, I know, absolutely. I mean, I think... <laughs> you know, I think where well, where, I mean, where did he I, go? Well, I mean, trying, I think, to hold his, um, his coalition together. So, I mean, it's remember, it's made up of three parties. The SPD, the Greens, and the Free Democrats. Now, the Greens are, you know, absolutely determined to keep on... I mean, they would probably even support this crazy embargo idea. But the other party, that the Social Democrats, probably a lot of Social Democrats, must be very unhappy with the way in which the Greens have, in effect, been running policy. But the third group are the Free Democrats. Now, the Free Democrats, historically, very close to the German business community, very close, by the way, to the German army. I mean, that's sort of the history. And... The business community in Germany, I mean, you know, they've had to swallow an awful lot and they're clearly now very unhappy. And it's perhaps unsurprising that the Free Democrats, who have gone along with every one of these decisions up to this point, are now seeing their vote collapse. There's been a whole succession of elections in Germany where the Free Democrats are in free fall. And I think that at this point, in order to ensure their own survival, um, they're going to start to harden their positions. And I think Schultz, who is, by the way, under pressure, there's been a long article about him, and I think it was Bill Zeitung, um, exposing his possible role in a corruption scandal, a clear indicator that there's some kind of power struggle of some kind underway in Germany. All of this now... As I say, he's coming together. He's, he's basically darking and weaving. He doesn't want to be put in a position of making decisions, of making choices, because on the one hand, he's got the Americans and the Greens breathing down his back. On the other, he's got the Free Democrats, some people in his own party, the military in Germany who are furious with him. <laughs> to be absolutely clear about it, they are very, very angry at having had to give up so much of their equipment at a time when they feel themselves to be severely under-equipped. So he's, he's hiding. He's hiding. Okay, well, um, the grain deal. The grain deal is something where the EU appears to have, uh, have buckled. It seems like they yeah. have folded to the demands of these uh, four, possibly five countries, Poland, 
Hungary, Slovakia, uh, Romania, possibly, Bulgaria. It looks like the, the EU has decided to, to just pay them off, give them $100 million, the way they always solve problems, and, and to just put a, a type of, of ban on Ukraine, Ukrainian yes. products, because they're cheap, but they're also, from what I understand, very, very uh, contaminated and a very, very poor quality as well and that may be the real reason why why we have this uh, this ban but real quick alexander my thoughts on this just very very quickly is that the eu they wanted this to go away because what this is effectively does is that it blows apart the russia is starving the world narrative so i think they wanted this thing to just disappear in whatever way they could make it disappear i completely agree and can i just say i think you've also covered this very well on your channel, just, 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 just to quickly have that little point. Now, can I just say this is one of the most comical um, episodes in this tragic story? You know, the whole tragedy of Ukraine and the war there, because what happens is, first of all, you have Zelensky who goes to Warsaw. Everything looks, you know, incredibly happy. Everybody seems, you know, they're they're all in a complete agreement. They're talking about alliances, strategic cooperation, you know, merging their countries, all those things. Of course, as we discussed at the time, you and I on this channel, lots of Polish people actually are very, very unhappy. There were protests. We reported about the fact at the time that there were protests from Polish farmers who are very unhappy that cheap, substandard, contaminated Ukrainian grain is pouring into Poland, depressing prices there, putting a lot of farmers under a lot of pressure and some of them out of business. Farmers are a key part of the electoral coalition of the Law and Justice Party, which is the governing party in Poland. So soon as Zelensky's out of the way, they buckle. <laughs> they impose this ban on Ukrainian grain. Um, Poland, the country that has been the most strident supporter of Ukraine up to this point, suddenly turns round, infuriates the Ukrainians, infuriates, as we saw also, the U European Commission. They're furious about this. They issue statements that Poland and other East European countries like Romania and Bulgaria, apparently, and Slovakia and all these places which are either imposing similar restrictions on Ukrainian grain or considering doing so, that they're stabbing Ukraine in the back and that they're doing Putin's work. The last, by the way, the EU Commission actually said, they actually said that, you know, that they're doing Putin's work, that they're siding with Putin. These are the East Europeans of all people. And they demanded that these bans be reversed. And then they folded <laughs> almost immediately because they knew perfectly well that these bans were not going to be reversed. And as you say, they come along with this hundred million dollars, which euros, which is piffle, frankly. And uh, uh, as you correctly say, they want to draw the curtain down on the whole affair because it has been such an epic embarrassment for them. It demonstrates that, you know, Ukrainian grain is not, you know, the great solution for the world's food problems and the way people have been saying it's not you know an option really and uh, it's not going to change anything if you ban it or if you don't but it also shows something else which is that european solidarity for ukraine is not quite as firm as people as people have been told 
And more to the point, if you can't have Ukraine exporting grain into the European Union when it is outside the European Union, however is it going to join? I mean, the whole point about joining the European Union is that you participate in its single market, which will mean that there'll be an, there would be an awful lot more Ukrainian grain, presumably, circulating within the EU. So given that the EU is committed to having Ukraine join the EU on some day in the indeterminate future, they don't want this story to gain as much attention as it might do. So they don't want a protracted row. They don't want to appear, uh, um, you know, as if more and more people in Eastern Europe are taking sides against Ukraine. So they just folded almost at once. Listening to you, I just had a, a thought and idea, which I want to throw your way. Just I was just listening to what you were saying. Uh, you, you know, and then I was thinking about Greece and everything that Greece has been through with the European Union. Um, Poland, Romania, Hungary, the European Commission, the entire EU, they don't really want Ukraine to contribute anything to the European Union. They don't want Ukraine to export stuff to the European Union. They don't care about Ukraine exporting things to the EU, whatever those things may be, for whatever reasons. What the European Union wants, what the collective West wants, is they want to exploit Ukraine. They don't want a partnership built on trade. I'll sell you this, you sell me that. They don't want a partnership built on, 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 on equality, of looking at, at Ukraine as an equal partner. They want to exploit Ukraine. That's the, I mean, I was listening to what you're saying, and I'm, and I'm thinking, you know, this is the European Union in, in, its, in its most simple form. Destroy Ukraine. Let's get in there and let's just pillage and plunder everything they have. Who are these people to give us... Wheat, even if it's contaminated, whatever. We don't care. We don't care what they have to offer. What we really want is we want to get into the country and just take everything. Absolutely. No, this is exactly correct. They want to do that. They want to, as you correctly say, pillage Ukraine, in, operate in Ukraine entirely in their own very narrow interests. And, of course, the other thing they want to do is that they want to hold out all the time this... Uh, mirage of EU membership to the Ukrainians in order to um, keep them in conflict with Russia, because it's Russia that it's all about. I mean, I go all the way back to 2013, when there was the EU Association Agreement. And the point to understand about the EU Association Agreement was that the Russians at that time had just set up the Eurasian Economic Union. They were forging ahead with integration. Russia and Ukraine were in a free trade area. Um, there was close economic links between Ukraine and Russia. And what the European Union wanted to do was to spoil those. So that is why it created this association agreement, dangling in front of the Ukrainians the prospect of EU membership. Ukraine is no closer to EU membership now than it was in 2013. But what it did do, what the EU Association Agreement did do, was to set Ukraine and Russia in conflict with each other, leading all the way to this war. 
because the project is keep these two big Eastern Slav nations at loggerheads with each other. See, geopolitical game. It is also testament to the evolution of the European Union from a trading group, which is what it was originally in the 60s, into a geopolitical project, which is what it has become. Yeah. Anyway, all right. I, we'll leave it there. TheDuran.Locals.com. We are on Rumble, Odyssey, BitChute, and Telegram. And go to the Duran shop, 10% off. Use the code. Good day. Take care.